0: We thank you for beauty, and we pray that, Lord, you would open our eyes to that. Give us uh, the ability to open the eyes of our heart, that we may hear your truth. In Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. Hey, can I get a couple of people to help me with this whiteboard here? And maybe move it up on the stage. There you go. Way to go, guys. Y'all are awesome. Let's let's move it up on the stage the big stage up on here so you can go down the steps and come around over here and put it on this side. Appreciate those guys volunteering and the fact that the rest of you did not does not escape my notice. So thank you, men. Over here, this side. There you go. Well done. Did an awesome job, didn't they? Perfect. Almost. Just a little bit further over. All right. It was about uh, three months ago, a friend of mine um, emailed me this email and said, You've got to see this. So, So I went to it, and it's an article that was in the Washington Post uh, from a year or so back. Some of you may have heard of it. The Washington Post decided that they were going to uh, attempt to have an experiment. And the experiment was that they were going to uh, take an artist, a musician, and they were going to place them in a subway station in Washington, D.C., during the busiest... uh, time of commute early in the morning and have that musician play and to see if anybody would stop and notice so it was almost eight o'clock on friday january the twelfth in the middle of the morning rush hour and they had asked this musician to play for 43 minutes and this was no normal musician this musician was a violinist who was to perform six classical pieces In that 45 minutes, 1,097 people passed by, almost all of them on their way to work, which meant for most all of them, they were going to a government job. So the questions they wanted to ask was this. Do you listen? Do people hurry past with a blend of guilt and irritation? Do you throw uh, a couple of bucks into his violin case, to be polite? Does your decision change if he's really bad? What if he's really good? Would that affect how you would respond? The real question that they were asking in this experiment as Washington Post is, do you have time for beauty? Or should you? What's the moral and mathematics of the moment? Well, let me tell you a little bit uh, because I'm about to show you something. Uh, I'm going to show you those 43 minutes in just a minute. God works in mysterious ways. You came to church to watch 43 minutes of YouTube. This is no normal musician. The musician that they asked to do this is a guy by the name of Joshua Bell. Have you heard of Joshua Bell? Phenomenal musician. He's a one-time child prodigy. At 39, uh, he had reached international acclaim as one of the greatest violinists in the world. He has played in just about every venue that you could possibly imagine, a master violinist. And that's not even the word for it. Some of you are m- amazing violinists, and you would have language up here to talk about this guy. But he was phenomenal. And the Washington Post wanted to take someone that was... That it, there was no debate how great a musician this person was. he was accomplished. This was the kind of guy that you would pay one hundred to two hundred dollars to go and hear him play with a symphony and what 's amazing about this guy is that uh, he's, he agreed to do it under one condition: They put him up in a hotel and he says, "I need to have a taxi from my hotel to the subway station." It was only like four blocks. And the reason that he wanted a taxi there and back wasn't because he was afraid to walk. It was because he never carries his violin in public. Now, it's not because he's all psychological weird and stuff. It's because of the violin that he'll be playing in the subway station, which he insisted on using for this experiment. Because he said, if our experiment is, do people have time for beauty, then we need to give our best effort for that beauty to be beautiful. The violin that he was playing was a violin that was made in 1710 by a guy named Stradivarius. (laughs) Yes, with the original varnish on it. Can you guess how much he paid for that violin? Anybody? Well, come on, guys. This is group participation. Do I hear 70 bucks, $70? Do I hear 80, 80, 80, 90, 90, 90? Okay. We can have fun, you know, it is the community. For Stradivarius, it was considered his golden period. It was the moment in his career of making violins where he had become the master. And it was during that era that he made some of his greatest pieces. He even made his own varnish. And those that understand music would say even the varnish that's on the violin adds to the quality of music that came out of the violin. Some suspect that the uh, formula was this cocktail of honey, egg white, and some gum from a uh, sub-Saharian tree. They don't know exactly. But for, what? 300 years it's lasted. The price of that violin three and a half million dollars. So what would happen when the world's greatest violinist on one of the world's greatest violins steps into a busy subway station and begins to play six of the greatest classical pieces of music ever written for a violin? Well, let's watch and see. Can we kill the lights? Hang on, stop, 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 stop. Okay. Let me set this up, all right? You're not going to watch 43 minutes of video. This is not real time, obviously. These people are not on speed, all right? Although that's debated in Washington. Has anybody been there? All right. Uh, we're going to hear his music, but then we're going to watch uh, speed time of how people respond to this, okay? All right, Good. He actually made uh, $34 in the 45 minutes that he played, but 20 of them came from the lady at the end. He felt like she should give him more because uh, the the concert that she saw him in was free. Seven people stopped and hung around just to take in the performance for a minute or so. 27 gave money, and most of them on the run, out of nearly 1,100 people. It's interesting because what they concluded was that this was art without a frame, which it turns out may have a lot to do with what happened, and more precisely what didn't happen on this day in January the 12th. They actually performed another experiment where they went to a museum and took a work of art that was worth $5 million, and they took it out of its frame and out of the setting of its museum and took it to a diner three blocks down the street and hung it above the window for the short order cook to see, and plastered a price tag of $150 on it to see if anybody would even notice. And nobody noticed. And the context that they're saying is that this was art without a frame that out of the context of it's designed for beauty, it loses its value. The poet Billy Collins once laughingly observed that all babies are born with a knowledge of poetry because of, of the love-dumb of the mother's heart is an iambic meter. Then Collins says life slowly starts to choke the poetry out of us. It may be true with music, too. And you say, well, why are we showing this? Why would we take the time this morning to talk about that? Because we're starting a new series this morning. The new series is in the book of Colossians. And I believe that the book of Colossians, and the reason we're going to start studying this book of Colossians, is because I want to ask you, what, what have you framed your life with? In what context are you living your life Has your life created a frame that is so broad and out of context that there's no beauty in it? Or have you framed it in such a way that now you have found the beauty of who you are and who Christ is? So let's go to Colossians uh, chapter 1. This book in Colossians, it's an interesting book because uh, it's a young church. And as a young church, they were in a pretty insignificant town. Matter of fact, uh, no one's been able to find any archaeological digs or anything that connects to this city of Colossians. It's almost obscure in history. Insignificant, young town with young believers in it, much like us in this room. These were young people who were new in their faith and were just beginning to explore the treasure of of what it meant to be those in Christ. They were just beginning to explore the power and the resources of what it meant to be a believer. They were like young Jedis that had not yet had their island with Yoda, you know? I can't even do it. I'm sorry. I should have practiced that. I've let you down. Paul had actually never even been there, even though he wrote this letter. There was another man that heard Paul preach in Ephesus who became a believer and was discipled under Paul's ministry, then went to this city and began to preach the gospel. So this man comes to Paul in prison and tells him about uh, this new church. And Paul is moved to pray for them and to write a letter to them. They were facing some challenges. They had some false teachers that were coming in to capture the strength and the power of these young Jedis. And one group of teachers were saying, what you really have to have is special knowledge. They were called Gnostics, and they were saying, you know, if you if you know, if you just know the the path, if you know the truth, if you have this special answer to every question, then that's what's going to get you into heaven and help you grow and mature as a believer. Then there were the Jews who were saying, No, really what, what you need is a life that is committed to doing the right thing. That if you can do the right thing, So one was saying, know the right thing. The other is saying, do the right thing. And Paul writes a letter right in the middle of that. And he asks us to consider what he's about to say. Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, let's stop for a minute, all right? Those lights are coming. All right. So Paul is praying, and he's thanking God for this community. What is he thanking God for? You can read ahead. What is he thanking them for? Their faith. Yeah, okay. First thing... Is their faith. What else is he thanking them for? Thanking God for. Their love. Love. Alright. He says, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. The faith and the love that springs from what? hope. Paul is giving us a frame. And what he's saying is, is that the love and the faith that we are thanking God for because we see it in your life, is because these things have been birthed forth from hope. That they had framed their community, they had framed their life in hope. And out of that frame was bringing forth love. So, what does this mean? What is hope that it would be so powerful that it would spring forth faith and love in this community, this young Jedi community? What is hope? Well, is hope nothing more than a wish? Or is it a dream? Is it, you know, I hope I get a good job? Or I hope I get married? Or I hope that we have kids? or I hope that I stay healthy. The other day I was in MAPCO over on 8th Avenue, and uh, it was when Powerball was like at or $269 million. Uh, do you all remember that? <clears throat> no? <clears throat> Anybody buy a ticket? Anybody win? <clears throat> and everybody was lined up, and they were all talking, and they were in a good mood because they had hope. The number had not been picked yet, and their number may be the winning number. And they're laughing, and you know they're talking about the stuff they would do, you know. And it was kind of crazy, and you know, I was like third in line, and I had my hat. No, I didn't. I didn't buy tickets. But these people were buying tickets, and they were hoping that they would win. And is that the hope that Paul is talking about there? Because imagine adjusting your life to that kind of hope. Imagine that you buy the ticket for 269 and you hope that that ticket's going to win and you're going to be a millionaire. And so you go and you run up all your credit cards. You know, you start giving away your iPods and your, you know, your iPhone and your car and your wardrobe because, "See, I don't need all those stuff because I'm going to get all new stuff next week when they announce the winner." If we put our lives in that kind of hope, our friends would think that we'd lost our mind. But we gone crazy? Because they we would say, "You're just wishing." That's wishful dreaming. Is that what Paul's talking about here? That we have a wishful dream of something that's allowing us to have faith and love? You know, this is why so often we feel hopeless. Because in a subtle way, we begin to put our hope in things that aren't strong enough to sustain the hope that we put in them. That we hope in things that don't have the power to make that hope a reality. I mean, think about it. I hope that my marriage makes me happy. That is a very weak place to put hope. Because marriage doesn't have the strength to give me something that marriage can't give me, which is happiness. Or I hope that my roommate will clean the toilet. (laughs) That's a very weak place to put hope. Or you hope your husband would clean the toilet. Or just lift the seat. All right. Or you hope that your husband would give you the remote control at least once. It's a weak place to put hope. So what is hope? Let's go back to Colossians. It says here, That hope stored up for you in heaven that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. That hope which is stored up in heaven. what is stored up in heaven for us? Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Jesus Christ who is in heaven and is our salvation. The scripture tells us that God was not content for us not to be in relationship with him. And because of that, he sent his son here on this earth. And through Christ's perfect life, his work on the cross, and through his resurrection, now we have a secure place with our father. To where now our hope is in the work and the finished, accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Let me try to explain. You know... If you've ever read the story of the prodigal son, where the prodigal son comes home and his father comes running out and embraces him even though he squandered his father's money. He's committed all kinds of gross sins. And then he brings his son in and he robes him and he puts a ring on his finger. And I always think probably the hardest thing for that prodigal son ever to do was to sit at the banquet table with his father. And his father looks at him and says, Now eat to actually eat this food and receive the love of the Father when he knew what he had done before he got there. But he was being shown mercy. He was being shown grace. He was being shown love by the Father, through the Father. And the food on the table was on that table because of the Father. In the same way, our hope is in Christ because through Christ we receive all the love of the Father. Through Christ we receive all the mercy of the Father. Through Christ we receive all the gifts of the Father. God's mercy is expressed to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through Him alone. Our hope is certainly found in one place, and that is in what Christ has done for us. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, and this is verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't underlined that, you should underline that because our hope is not a dead hope. Our hope isn't wishing that something's going to come true. Our hope is in the certainty that what God has promised is going to come true. That when he says, I have reserved a place for you in heaven, my hope isn't that when I die, man, I just I wish and I hope that comes true. My hope is in the certainty of what he says will happen is going to happen. And I adjust my life to that hope. My Savior is for me. His future is for me. I trust in His promises. Let me try to give you an example of this: of how adjusting my life to the reality that when Scripture talks about hope, it's not wishful thinking, it's putting my trust in what I know to be true. When I lived in Fort Lauderdale, there was this, um, it, it was this deli. La Spada. I don't know if you've ever been there Laspata is run by two very angry Italian men and But they made the most amazing hoagies in the world They are just stacked with They're just, ugh, they're just good And if you're hungry right now Just the thought of a Laspata sub Would just, you know It would be enough to make you rejoice Praise Jesus, you know and whenever we were down there, whenever people left Fort Lauderdale and when they would come back, like for spring break or they came back from vacation, you would often hear, what are you going to do when you get back? I'm going to La Spada's. Uh And for college students, when they would come back into town, there was no greater gift that their mother could give them than a good hug and all, a La sub. sub You know, right on the spot. Welcome home, child. Feast upon the goodness of Fort Lauderdale. And... Uh, Here's the amazing thing is when somebody mentions La Spada's because they were kind of pricey, but they were worth every penny. They weren't an everyday affair. They were special occasions. They should have a holiday for them. Um, when someone says, we're going to eat at Las La there's a couple of things that you don't do at that point. All right? The first thing that you don't do is go in the kitchen and start eating. You don't. Because you, you don't want to wreck your appetite. The best way to eat a Laspada hoagie is you are so hungry that you are daring your friends to eat an entire foot long. It's impossible, but you can dare each other and feel the pain of it. You, you don't eat. You don't go in the kitchen and eat. And another thing that you don't do when you go into Laspadas is you don't go in with this attitude that these angry Italians are going to keep me from getting my food. Because they make fun of you. They joke with you. They laugh about what you're wearing. They go, what are you doing in here? Is that all the sandwiches you're going to order? You know, how big of a tip are you going to leave? I mean, it's just ridiculous when you go in there. You have to have the hope of La Spada. What I mean by that is, when I know La Spada's is coming, <clears throat> my hunger becomes a celebration not something to moan about my hunger becomes the very thing that makes me long for the moment that Patas will walk through my kitchen door and i know it's coming <clears throat> that's why i'm not eating i have adjusted my life's appetite to my laspata hope this illustration is way too weak for where we're going but track with me i'm in it now and i have to be committed to it <laughs> i know You just can't come up with great illustrations every week, right? I'm sorry. My hope that my Savior has purchased for me redemption and has crowned me with forgiveness and has called me Son and has said my good fortune and the favor of my Father is upon you is the very hope that that gives me strength in life when I frame my life in hope. That the things that I'm going through now are with my eyes set on the hope that my Father has preserved for me in heaven a place for Him. And that is rich, but it's not enough. I'm going to tell you right now, it's not enough for me to know in the great by and by I'm going to be in heaven. And you know what? Hope is not just that. Hope is powerful for the moment too. Listen to these, and you can write these down if you want. In Psalm 43 and verse 5, it says, Hope brings health to my heart and to my soul. In Psalm 31, 24, it says, Hope brings me courage and strength. You want to know where to get courage in your life and strength in your life? Psalm 31 says, We get that in hope, a living hope, an abiding hope. In Psalm 71, 5, it says, Hope gives me confidence. In Psalm 103, verse 7, it says hope brings mercy into my life. In, Ho- in Psalm 146, verse 5, it actually says that hope awakens happiness in my life. That happiness is connected to the present living hope that I framed my life with. In Proverbs 14:32, it says hope removes fear. And the greatest fear of all, the fear of the grave. Let me read for you. This is uh, a writing from John Piper. He tries to describe hope. He says, As a sinner with no righteousness of my own, standing before a self-sufficient and holy God, what command would I rather hear than this? Hope in my love. If we only knew it, every one of us are stranded on an ice face in Greenland and the wind is blowing fiercely. Our position is so precarious that even if we inhale too deeply, our weight will shift and we will plunge to our destruction. God comes to us and says in that moment, I will save you and protect you from the storm. But there's a condition and your heart sinks when you hear that because you know you can't meet conditions. Your face is flat against the ice. Your fingernails are dug in. You can feel yourself giving way. You know that if all you do is move your lips, you're going to fall. You know that there is nothing you can do for God. Then he speaks the gospel command. My requirement, he says, is that you hope in me. Now I ask, is that good news? What could be easier than to hope in God when all else is giving way? And that is all he requires. That is the gospel. That Christ has done everything for us and our hope is in Him alone. See, what's amazing is is that hope has the ability of turning ashes into beauty. It has the ability to take that which is broken and when it is pushed into the frame of hope, it turns it into beauty. And so for the next six or seven weeks, we're going to be talking about how do you frame your life in hope to where once you push things into the center of that frame, what you thought was not beautiful becomes beautiful. And I want to challenge you, I want to challenge you to violently, violently push your life into the frame of hope. Let me try to explain. When I violently take hold of those sins in my life that I'm struggling with, you know those things in your life that you feel haunt you? like your house is a haunted house and that sin just doesn't want to go away and it keeps bringing shame and guilt into your life, those things that you think you'll never be rid of, when you take that and you push it into the frame of hope, you know what happens in that place? That sin loses its power because in hope I know that I'm forgiven that Christ has taken that sin and thrown it as far as the east is from the west. I am set free. That sin has no more power to bring any accusation on me and cannot keep me from the love of my Father. But if that sin stays outside the frame of hope, it is ugly and putrid. But when I push it into hope, guess what happens? Now I see the beauty of my Savior who says, where sin increases, grace increases even more. Try to out me. You can't do it. That is beautiful, isn't it? Let's take sex, for example. Let's push it into hope. Because outside of hope, what is it? It becomes something that I desire to bring me gratification in my life. Something I desire to hopefully experience intimacy. But when I push it into hope and I hear my father talk about what it is as a gift from him... This beautiful gift to be celebrated in, in the frame that He has given us. It brings me hope, even if you're single this morning and you're saying, I have no sex life. We have hope because the Lord has not forgotten you. The Lord knows your desires. The Lord has not abandoned you. And He even promises, when we push that into the middle of the frame of hope, He says, I am working all things together for your good. How about money? What happens when we violently push money into the frame of hope? We begin to realize, man, life is a breath. And my money is not here to serve me, or me to serve it. It's here to serve the kingdom of God. And so now my money becomes a beautiful expression of my relationship with Christ as my membership in the kingdom is being expressed through the gifts that He's given me the time that He's given me, the, the talents that He's given me. You a know, funny, you know, like relationships. Have you ever experienced hopelessness in relationships? Wow. When we push it into the frame of hope, we begin to flex the muscles of faith and love. Faith is that ability to receive and have hands to receive the great gifts of God and when we do receive those things and we begin to express our faith in relationships they express themselves through love that's why it says in colossians or 1 corinthians 15:58 i declare to you brothers that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable listen and i'll tell you a mystery you will not all sleep but we will all be changed Where, O death, is your sting, and the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law? But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What an abiding hope. Therefore, stand firm, and let nothing move you, always giving yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. So here's what's crazy. When I push my life into the frame of hope, When I begin to experience the beauty of the promises of God and His work in my life and His presence in my life, even in the hard things in my life that I've pushed into this frame of hope, and now I'm breathing the air of the promises of my Father, and I believe that He has swallowed the grave for me, we begin to see that we can bring others into the frame of hope. Hope for the poor, hope for the sick, for the lonely for the depressed, for the slaves, for the refugees, for the hungry, for the homeless, for the abused, for the paranoid, for the downtrodden, for the despairing, basically for this entire crazy world that's so messed up. So this is what I would say to you. Your life matters. Do you know that? Your life matters. It matters. And it matters how you live your life. That matters. Paul is daring you to frame your life with hope. To move your life into the frame context of beauty. Beauty outside its context... 1,200 people walked by. Only seven had time for it. Are you rushing in your life so much that you have lost the beauty? You've lost the context of what God has done and what he is doing. Has it become so crazy and so much about you that so much of your life has moved outside the frame? That hopelessness is more common to you than hope. Well, over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about how do you move your life into that frame? How does hope explode into us in growing in our knowledge, growing in our deeds, growing in the things that God's calling us into, and growing in the gospel? Before this morning, I would ask you, what is framing your life? What is the context in which you see yourself, you see your family, you see your friends, you see your pain, you see your struggle, you see your life? Is that hope? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness this morning. For your promises. For your presence. And Lord, we pray that even now that you'd speak to us. (laughs) You'd speak to us, Father, about... Those areas in our lives that we would, we would more describe as ugliness or ashes than we would describe as beauty. And just pray, Father, that in all the things that I've said this morning, that Lord, what our people, what this people, our community needs to hear, Fathers, from you. To so guide us now, I pray, Lord. Lead us into that place to where we would search our own hearts to understand how we framed ourselves.